Good to see you all. I'm glad that you're looking forward to digging into the Word here. So this morning, we're going to be, we're going to be um, looking at 2 Kings. Uh, dear God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the worship team leading us in thinking about and, and singing through some, just reflecting on things that you do for us and have done for us. And um, we're just so thankful that we're going to be able to be uh, together even for eternity, um, worshiping you in some way like that, it would be even better. But, um, but just thank you for that. And I pray that you will speak to us this morning through your word as we continue through this series, which has been really, really great. And um, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Second Kings today. And as Brian said last week, Kings was one book. It's been divided into two in our Bible. And so there are some similar, similar things that are in both books. Um, specifically, I want to speak about that Jeremiah is traditionally credited as being the author of Second Kings. Or at least if it wasn't him, it was someone who lived at the end of the kingdom of Judah. It was somebody who had a prophetic voice and who would have had access to these books that are listed on the screen there, the different histories of the kings of, uh, well, of Solomon and of the kings of Israel and Judah. Um, it would have been written before the Babylonian captivity, except for the last two chapters, which were added later, and so would have also had a different author. But I think one thing that struck me as I was studying this is it's just how amazing it is, that even that the, the author had access to these other documents. I mean, we're, we, we have access to a lot of information um, in our day, and I think we take for granted that things are so easily accessible. So I think it's just an amazing thing where God intervened to give this person access to those histories. And we can see in the content of Second Kings that it fits in earl with earlier warnings such as when the Jewish people were leaving Egypt, warnings against falling into idolatry and the power of idolatry and the need to not be like the people around us. And, and those are really timeless warnings for us as well. I really appreciate it. I wasn't here, but I, I did hear some good things and looked at the notes about some examples of idolatry in our day. It's good to keep it, keep it in the present too. So, <clears throat> to give you an overview, 2 Kings can be divided into two sections. The first section deals with the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. And sometimes Israel is known, known as the northern kingdom and Judah as the southern kingdom. And Judah is the kingdom that would, continues the line of David. And this part of the book could be, basically goes through where Israel is deported to Assyria. It's a, a period of about 131 years. And once that happens, we're left with just Judah, the surviving kingdom. And that section covers the kings from Hezekiah to Zedekiah. Eventually, though, even though there are a few good kings still in this, in this kingdom, eventually God, uh, because of the, the evil there and the bad kings, um, God judges them and they are deported to Babylon instead of Assyria, like Israel was. And again, this period runs about 155 years. 
Now, on the back of your study sheet, there is a chart. I found this chart really helpful because basically it takes the two kingdoms, puts them side by side, and it kind of shows you who is influencing who, who's speaking to who on behalf of God. It's not like anything's been created that's not in the Bible, but it just puts it in a way that your mind might be able, like mine, as I've been looking through and studying this, sometimes I've really had to focus on, like, wait a minute, who's this guy? Like, who's he related to? And who's this prophet? Like, when, when did he live? So I just think it's a good visual. And I think it'll also be helpful to moving forward as we get into some of the other books, because it'll show you, like, when a certain prophet was speaking. And so when we get to some of those books, it might just help you keep the whole big picture in perspective. So today, I want to focus, I have two focuses. Um, The first part, I want to just look at two kings and their influences on their kingdoms. Specifically, I want to look at King Hezekiah's influence on Judah, and I want to look at King Jehu's influence on Israel. Because it's quite obvious, you can't go through these books without seeing how all these different kings are coming and going. And the thing that's interesting about these two is, is I want to see how these guys really tried to make their kingdom more like, more like what God would want. I'm not saying they successfully, were completely successful, but that was their effort. So starting with King Hezekiah and Judah, he took what must have been an unpopular stance to some of removing the high places of idolatry. He trusted the Lord and showed that. He also sought godly counsel when he was in times of peril, which shows humility. And specifically, I'm going to read a section here. It's 2 Kings chapter 18, in case you want to follow through with, follow along with some of that. I'm reading in New American Standard Version. So it's um, 18. I'm going to start at 17. And basically... What's going on here is Israel has, has just been carried off um, by Assyria, and even Judah's fortified cities have been seized. And they're in this desperate place where the army of Assyria is at Jerusalem's door. And so, just um, we can read along. It says, Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rasekah, from Lekesh to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway in the fuller's field. And when they called to, king, called to the king, Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asap, the recorder, came out to them. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Now behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, 
Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now therefore come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shenah and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak in Judean in the hearing of the people on the wall. But Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then Rabshakeh took and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and the city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each of his own vine, and each of his own fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come to take you to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim, Hena, and Iva? They have, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? So, I'll stop there for this point. I'm just trying to show that this is like not a minor thing. And this guy is like, talk about trash talk. He is like really piling it on, right? And so these guys, uh, the, the advisors come to Hezekiah and he immediately, he tears his clothes, he covers himself with sackcloth and he enters the house of the Lord. And then he sends them to go and speak with the prophet Isaiah, looking for counsel, looking for assurance. Isaiah says, he says to them in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, of which the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. That's what happens. Um, but I, I guess I just wanted to read that. I know it's long, but to emphasize that this was a really drastic place. And it wasn't as if he just came in and talked the talk. He, they had already conquered um, Israel, and they had already even conquered some of their own fortified cities. But he showed his trust in God. His heart was with God, Hezekiah's was. And he led his people in that way. Now I want to look at Jehu, uh, the king, one of the kings of Israel. And I just want to say right off the bat, 
that you probably already figured this out, but these stories are not in order. Jehu was before Hezekiah, but I'm just doing this in this order because I'm trying to emphasize something, so if you'll just bear with me, I just don't want to confuse anybody about the order of things. So God had earlier anointed Jehu for the bloody repayment that God had demanded because of the sins of Ahab. And I was going to read this, but it's also kind of long, but this section, which I have some highlights here on your screen, basically Jehu, he just goes crazy, and he's anointed by, um, it was prophesied by Elijah, and he's anointed king, and he just goes in and wipes out, he, he goes in and kills everybody associated with Ahab. He calls a meeting where he's pretending that he's going to really like have a great worship time, worship service for Baal. He makes sure everybody who worships Baal is, is there and makes sure that nobody who is a worshiper of God, is of the true God, is there and then basically has his guys kill everybody that's there. I mean, he, he does what God asked him to do. But it says, however, in verse in Second Kings 10, verse 29 begins, we're going to pick up there. It says, However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves that were at Bethel and were at Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. So none of the kings of Israel escaped this, this sin of Jeroboam that, that Jeroboam had set, what, what sin Jeroboam had set up. Now, what sin was that? I don't know if you all remember but if we go back to 1 Kings, we're going to see, ultimately, it was based on not worshiping God the way that God had instructed them earlier in the scripture, specifically related to worshiping at the temple. And the sin is recorded in, well, the whole process of him coming, of Jeroboam coming up with this system is in 1 Kings 12. It says, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. And then the heart of the people will return to the Lord, even to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves, and he said to them, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he made houses on high places, and he made priests from among all the people who were not the sons of Levi. So despite God's promises to Jeroboam, Jeroboam did not trust God, but tried to retain the kingdom on his own. And this, pre this precedence that he set, as I mentioned, was never able to be broken by any of the other kings of Israel. So Likewise, today, we have kings come and go, right? We don't call them kings usually here, but we have kings come and go, good kings, not so good kings. But I think this verse can help us to apply something to our lives. So it says, 
Again, that Jehu was not careful to walk in the ways of the law of the Lord. So it's, it's a heart issue. Even back with the verse with Jeroboam, it says he said in his heart, oh, these people are going to go somewhere else. And I'm not trying to take away from what Jehu carried out for God, because God said in that scripture we read that God was pleased with what he did. But I wonder if this isn't an example of how acting out towards other people is easier than the discipline of rooting out personal sin or idolatry or even the reverse of that of building disciplining uh, and adding habits to our life that God would want us to add to our lives to make us more like him. So I'm left kind of asking, is there anybody who took more care of their hearts in Second Kings than the, the bad kings that I was just talking about? Well, we already talked about Hezekiah, right? He sought counsel. He was humble and trusting of the Lord. And then there are some other people that are mentioned, which I call them the attentive proclaimers, confident expectors, persistent givers, and genuine believers. And these people, the attentive proclaimers, those are the, the prophets. I group them in that. They're the prophets. There's Elijah, Elisha, and other unnamed prophets that, we, that their names aren't even recorded. They prophesy and proclaim, but they don't always personally even deliver what they've been told from the Lord. Someone else might do it, or they might not even live to see their prophecy take place. They spoke as directed by God and were often ignored by their audience. We know for Elijah in particular, he had a lot of struggles with his role. But if these prophets weren't being ignored, they may have been being hated or hunted down or locked up, but still they chose not to go in the direction that the bad kings did. They chose to remain attentive and to be trusting in the Lord. Now, I called one person the confident expector, and this is this individual is found in chapter 4. It says, Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be slaves. So she's appealing to Elisha, the representative of God, for help. And I would just say, like, this woman could have chosen... Uh, you know, her husband died, and now she's about to have her kids um, be taken as slaves because she, they can't pay their bills. She could have been a bitter person. She could have been angry. and But she has an expectation that God is going to come through for the family of somebody who feared, who feared God. And she looks to Elisha to carry out, uh, somehow, to, to somehow come up with a solution. And um, you may know the story. This is the story of the widow's oil where basically he tells her to gather containers because all she has is a little container of oil. Gather containers. They bring all the containers in their house and she and her sons, it's like the endless, the endless container. It fills all the other containers up. They sell the oil and they are able to pay off their debt and have money to live on. So God is faithful because she was expectant for him to come through. Another person right after that I call a persistent giver. 
She's also sometimes known as the Shunammite woman because of where she is from. And she starts off just feeding Elisha when he comes and goes past where they live. And this becomes a regular habit where he'll come and have meals with them. And then she even convinces her husband to build an addition onto the house so that whenever he's in the area, he can have a place to stay. So she's an example of generosity and faithfulness and persistence in those qualities. And she had no child prior to um, her interaction with Elisha, and eventually she has a child. But in that waiting period, she could have become again, bitter, or just taking a totally different direction with her heart, but she chose to, to be generous and faithful. And lastly, we have a, a character who only has one line in the whole book of Second Kings, but I call her a, gen, a genuine believer because she has, she's a child with childlike faith and love for her master. So this is in the story of Naaman. Naaman was a um, valued great warrior for the king of Aram. And this girl, she, she makes this statement. She says, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. So of all people, this is the girl, this is the character probably the furthest down the social ladder, so to speak. So, first of all, she's, she's a little girl captive in a foreign land, and she's just a servant to this Naaman's wife, but yet she wants the best for this man. And she also has the faith and believes that through Elisha, her master, he could be healed of this leprosy. So she kind of like believes for Naaman, which leads to this whole chain of events, which I'm not going to get into. Please read it in chapter 5, but how he goes there and eventually he is healed and comes to understand who the living God is. So this all leads me to ask, how do we take care of our hearts? We may not be kings like Hezekiah was a king, but are we seeking counsel? Are we humbling our hearts and trusting God for our difficult relationships, our health, our finances? Are we attentive proclaimers? We may not be prophets like Elisha and the other prophets, but are we being an agent of God for other people, for the, the widow to see her situation change? God had to act through some person, right? And for the, the second lady, she eventually has a child, and that child dies, and God uses Elisha to bring him, him back to life. And like the little girl, it's a similar thing where God had to use someone here to be an agent for his, I mean, he didn't have to, but he chooses to use us as agents for his activity on earth. Are we a person like that? And do we expect that God's going to do great things? Are we telling or showing others that we believe that? And the other question is, are we a persistent giver? The example I want to give of this, um, Jane in our life group has shared about her mom, and she talked about her mom was really a giver. 
And I just love the story, and I hope I do it justice because it's just awesome. He talked about growing up, how her mom would give things away, and Jane and her siblings would be like, um, do you really need to give that away? Like, thinking, what are we going to do? Because you're giving this thing away. And um, even in recent times, Jane's talked about how she would get, went to her mom's house, and she was on her way, and she thought, oh, I'll just pick up some food, just to bring some food to her as a part of our visit. And we got, and they got to the house, and her mom was like, oh, that's great, you brought food. And she said, because I just gave everything we had away to so-and-so who needed it. And, um, I, just, I mean, I never met her, but, man, just, just she, I guess the way she put it was, you can't receive when your hands are full. So I just think that's a really simple way of saying it. You can't receive when your hands are full. So are we giving like that? And what I meant by are we a, a genuine believer like the little girl is, are we spending time in the Word contemplating all these things? Do we have a, a childlike faith for our masters, whether it's our bosses or someone else in our life that's, you know, we have a, you know, maybe we're under their authority in some way? Do we have that kind of faith to be asking and want, expecting God to do great things in their life? So Second Kings, in addition to having just a chronology of all these different kings that have come and gone, these other figures also encourage us to strengthen and exercise our faith with those in our lives. And what I just wanted to say is on, on the review sheet, there's the verses with all these different characters, but I just, I added some supportive verses that kind of go along with the, the quality that they sort of um, show. And I just encourage you to maybe just, even if you look through that, just think about one of those characteristics and read the, those verses and I just encourage you to ask God if that's an area that God would want you to grow in in this coming spring or just, you know, this coming year. I leave that to you and God, and I just ask that you to give that some consideration. So we'll close off here, and we'll just close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your entire Bible. Lord, every word is useful we don't always understand how every word fits into something for us, but over time, I think it really does. And we're just thankful for how you put us together with other people, how you have arranged things in a way that we could be a part of what you're doing on this earth. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the, just for one another to be able to be together in this place. And we praise you and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And what he did for us at the cross. And we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.